welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 25, The Truth. I find this title amusing because when I talk about this novel in casual conversation, it's like I'm reading The Truth. And people always give me this like weird look until they realize that it's a book <laughs> that I'm reading. You've been converted. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this book was published in 2000. So we are officially done with the 90s. I guess I didn't make a big deal about that last week, that The Fifth Elephant is the last book of the Discworld 90s. How does it feel to have another decade under your belt? Oh, good Lord. I was also published in 2000. Oh, fuck, I've doxxed myself on the old old podcast. So I'm 10 years older than you. That's interesting. Yeah, I have been published in, like, a a few college publications, and then technically, if I want to feel good about myself, I can say I'm technically an internationally published author, because one of my uh, articles was published in the Edinburgh Student Literary Journal, so it's like, that's not the country I live in. Yeah, I mean, technically it's true. International. Technically it's true, yeah. So speaking about writing, The Truth is the 25th Discworld book and the second of what is loosely known as the Industrial Revolutions branch of the Discworld. So the first one that we read was Moving Pictures, which is referenced in this book. This book kind of does something similar, but instead of movies, it's about the printing press and the invention of journalism on the disc. There are no adaptations of this novel, but it was highly praised when it came out due to its parody of journalistic culture, screwball comedies like His Girl Friday. There's a lot of that DNA of His Girl Friday, especially in the relationship between William and Sacharissa, and the way that it presents us with familiar characters of Ankh-Morpork, but from a very new, very different point of view. It also leans further into those themes of modernity and steampunk that were escalated first in The Fifth Elephant. So we see the continuation of that theme into this novel as well. Mm. William DeWord is the black sheep of the DeWord family, refusing his father's money and eking out an existence writing a newsletter for rich patrons. When he meets some enterprising dwarves who own the disc's first printing press, they quickly join forces to start the Ankh-Morpork Times, the disc's first newspaper. Their first big scoop? The apparent crimes of Lord Vetinari, accused of embezzlement and murder. William suspects something is not quite right, but the more he investigates this story, the stranger and more dangerous it becomes. Nigel, what were your first thoughts about this novel? Vetinari is innocent. (laughs) <laughs> hashtag innocence <laughs> veterinary has done nothing wrong i don't know i felt kind of because i was at first it was like oh he tried to kill drum and i was like why the fuck would veterinary do that and then it was like oh he was embezzling i'm like that's m- far too mundane a crime for veterinary to ever deign to do well i love that both vimes and william are like this is not right. Like, this is, this. these are, what does vimes call it? Stupid facts. These are stupid yeah. facts. <laughs> And then Carrot is like, yeah, I can't imagine him killing anyone. And Vime says, I can't imagine him apologizing. (laughs) (laughs) There's some good Vetinari content in here, but I know that Vetinari is your comfort character. Did you feel, how did you feel about this peril to him? Not an assassination attempt this time, although he does suffer a physical injury. Yeah, I don't, but there is a quote. Hold on now, I'm going to get it up. About character assassinations. 
Because, like, like, it is an assassination attempt, just not, like, an attempt on his life. No one said character assassination. What a wonderful idea. Ordinary assassination only works once, but this one works every day. And I feel like this is probably the most... The most threat to who Veterinary is that he's had. Like, yeah, he got shot by the Ghana in Men at Arms. But he recovered from that. But, like, physically being removed from his office... And not being able to defend himself, because he's in a coma for most of the book. Yeah, not just, like, lying around, like, what is it, feet of clay with the arsenic in the um, walls? Because at least in feet of clay, he, like, was conscious, even though he was sick, and he could, like, figure out what was going on. But here, it's like he's completely removed from being able to defend himself at all. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's kind of the point, because if he were able to defend himself and say, hey, look, there was an imposter who looked just like me, I think it would fall apart fairly quickly if you had key testimony from the supposed perpetrator. I think the point the book is getting at here is like the power of rumor, right? And the power of, of, like you said, character assassination. Because even at the end when it's all proved that he didn't do it, the people who are reading the newspaper around the dinner table are still like, oh, well, he got away with it. You know, like there's something wrong. So, like, there, there is obviously, like, that interesting idea that once you imply that there's something amiss, no matter how ridiculous it is what you're implying, there are people who will believe it and who will kind of add it to their distrust of certain people, especially people in authority. We were talking about, um, in an episode that will go out this week on hyperfixations, about criminal minds and about like profiling people. I feel like that's kind of the same thing because we were talking about um, Richard Jewell, you know, the guy who was who fit the profile of the guy who bombed the marathon so fully that they said, well, it must be him. And then even then, when they proved that it wasn't it, like it couldn't have been him, it was still like, well, you f- he fit the profile, so it must be him. I feel like that's the same kind of way where if everyone just assumes it's veterinary, he gets away with it, then. I think it's funny we're talking about Vetinari first in this book, but I think we should talk about him because we learn some more things about him in this book. One, it has been hinted at before, but never really confirmed until this book that he went to school at the Assassin's Guild. And we Hmm. actually get to see him when he realizes that something's wrong at the beginning of the book, like he arms himself and Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip both are surprised at how fast he is. So how did that revelation impact your view of him as a character? He's pretty fucking badass. There is this sense that we've gotten in previous books that like he prefers to do nothing, right? He is the person who sets things in motions and then just maintains. He's a maintenance man, I think is what you called him in the last episode. That kind of gets brought up in this book where it's like he's the maintenance man. He He's famous for not really doing anything and sort of just like nudging things in the right direction. But that gives us this sense of the character as being kind of bloodless. And we kind of get the sense here that he is actually very physically active, like despite his appearance in other books. It was a nice turn of pace to like see that he could hold his own. I would be disappointed if Veterinary couldn't have held himself physically in a fight. Because like, I feel like the point should be that he can do this, but chooses not to in the same way right. that like, he could be a ruler like Lord Snapcase, but chooses not to. 
That is a big key part of his character, the choice not to. Like, Vetinari's constantly making choices about who he is and what he has to be in order to effectively rule the city. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to for an awful lot of people in the Discworld, like, the whole series over, is that, like, they're fundamentally defined by, like, what choices they do and don't make and how they make them. You know, like, in the same way that, like, Carrot tells Vimes that personal isn't the same as important, and that's a choice that they have to make and live by. Or in the way that, like, Granny Weatherwax protects people, like, that's something that she chooses to do. You know, like, try and shield uh, people from it by taking as much onto it herself as possible. I think also the other interesting thing that we get out of this, and again, this is something that has kind of been hinted at before, but this book, like, kind of takes it to another level, is this idea that, like, the people who keep plotting against Vetinari are the same group of people. It's always this circle of powerful people in a room. You remember when they were, like, trying to groom Nobby to, like, take over the city, um, when they were yeah. poisoning him. Like, there's always, like, these these people in the background who are plotting. And we get more of a sense of who that is in this book, which I definitely want to talk about. The, the people who, who turned Edward Death onto the gun? Yes. same The same people. I like that this is a conspiracy now. Yeah, it's a conspiracy. These, these rich people are constantly trying to get Vetinari out because he doesn't align with the way that they think things should be. I, I also kind of see Rust as being an extension of this as well, even though we don't hmm. see the conspiracy in Jingo. The fact that he's part of that circle and he's also looking for a way to get Vetinari out of power by kind of taking martial command of the city. I kind of see that as an extension of that sort of thinking. But the thing that I think was most interesting is this idea that when Vetinari's character is assassinated, that most of the guilds don't have loyalty to him. And we've seen that before, right? That the guilds, are, while not necessarily involved in the conspiracy, are more than happy to take advantage of it, right? To jockey for that power. The only exceptions are, as we find out at the end of the book, are the Guild of Beggars, the Seamstresses, the Launderers, and the Guild of Exotic Dancers. I find it fascinating that all of those guilds are are controlled by women. So Queen yeah. Molly, Mrs. Palm, Mrs. Manger, and Miss Dixie Boom. But like, there is also this idea that these are the guilds that people look down on the most. But they, they are the ones who support Vetinari, who stick with him. And we've seen this before from Queen Molly in other books, but we haven't seen it from Mrs. Palm or the other two guilds. Like, it feels deliberate that they're the people who have, like, benefited the most in a good way from Vetinari's creation of the guilds. Because there's, like, you know, regulation and safety for sex workers, you know, and for beggars, and they're able to, like not serve on the streets, whereas, like, the Assassin's Guild... The Assassin's Guild had been around for an awful long time. You know, like, it was around whenever pyramids took place. Because mm -hmm. it, it trained Tepich. I'm still sticking with that at the end of, of it. But, like, they just they would have just continued going around. Them and the Thieves' Guild would have gone around killing and robbing people in their own things. But, like, Veterinary seems to have introduced some measure of protection and safety for people that we don't necessarily look out for or care for in society. While like Lord Downey and some of the bigger guilds are just like, yeah, we should have somebody who's patrician, like Mr. Scrope, who everyone implies is somebody that they could manipulate. But then you get these like other guilds who obviously not only appreciate what Vetinari has done, but see him as somebody who will continue to protect them. 
You know who we do see again? Waffles. Waffles! Yeah, so this was the other thing I was going to say. Were you so happy to see Waffles? Because you've been asking after him. Yes. For, like, books now. Finally. Waffles, and who appears to be the other vice that Vetinari has, is his, like, soft spot for this dog. <laughs> this, yeah, like, who- really old terrier who's 16 years old. We learn in this book he's 16. I love Waffles. He's great. He defends Vetinari against two very, very scary men. Multiple times. Multiple times, yeah. We also, though, get what you've also been asking for for several books, which is a Discworld pet Avengers team-up with Waffles and Gaspode. Hmm. Who else did I want on that team? Grebo? Grebo, maybe, yeah. I like that, though. It's. It also seems to be like that kind of Agatha Christie silent... Was it Silent Witness, the one where the dog is the witness? It, there's also the reference to Deep Throat the with the deep bone, which is, it yeah. feels like a very American reference, but I found it very funny. I mean, this whole book is, like, it was written in 2000, but it's a very, like, 1970s America book. There's so much of it that's about Watergate and, like, the accountability of the press and, like, the public relationship with, with the people in power, which... We'll probably get into later because it's like the backbone of the book. But like, there's a lot about Watergate in it. Also, there's someone in it. I won't say where they do say Deep Throat as well as Deep Bone. Oh, I don't remember that. Wolfel sniffed his hand. He came running out of the palace straight under Ron's coat, said Deep Throat, which is, as you point out, the last place anyone would look, said William. I don't know who he's talking to in this scene because I've just searched it out of context. Maybe it's Gaspode and it's just like a weird typo where it's down as. As Deep Throat yeah. instead of Deep Bone? I don't know. Yeah, because a couple lines down then, like it's like Wuffles barked. 16 said Deep Bone. And it just goes back to, like, there's only one instance in this digital copy that says Deep Throat. Odd. It kind of does feel like maybe a typo or like a, a mist. I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the press, which is. Like you said, the backbone of this book. This is about the Ankh-Morpork Times, which is the first newspaper of the disc, which is started by William, Ganilla, Good Mountain, and his band of dwarves who have the printing press, and Sakharissa, who is like their first reporter. This book is not only interested in the beginnings of journalism, it's also very interested in how journalism and the news and the advent of newspapers really shifted the paradigm on how people viewed public information, how they viewed the truth, right, which is like a big thing in this book, and how they consumed content that had only previously been available to the rich and powerful, but now it was like massively available to everyone. What did you think about the way that this book explored that concept? You said before we see like familiar Discworld characters through this other like lens of the press, and especially like w- when William comes up against uh, the Watch and especially Vimes, it feels like a very unflattering portrait of Vimes that's painted. Because like this book, and when when you read it after having read you know all of the Watch books we've read so far, and the series and this book then are are kind of taking the point that ostensibly. The press and the police force are these, like, societal monitors who 
like, aim to have the public good at heart and are, like, can be vehicles for good. But in the same way that, like, we see the Watch doing good things in the Watch books, but now in this book, you know, like, I'm glad that we have this kind of, like, skeezy side to what they're doing. You know, where, where Vimes suddenly becomes very leery whenever William has his notebook out. And they say, well, what if we don't let you write it down? And the, and William is like, well, you can't stop me. Vimes would have this reaction to someone that he only knows as being aristocratic because he doesn't know William very well. Mm. Like starting this enterprise that Vimes doesn't see how it could be self-regulated because Vimes, even though Vimes self-regulates the watch, you know, who watches the watchman? Me. I watch the watchman and I watch myself. I don't think that he necessarily believes that other people could do the same thing because he's a very, because he's, as he said, he's a suspicious bastard. I think William has it right. We're on two different sides. Those sides just happen to be aligned, which I liked. I actually really enjoyed that because for me, it seemed like it was a way of seeing Vimes his his short-sightedness in some ways. Like, Vimes has blind spots just like anybody else does. And being able to see those blind spots and being able to see that even Vimes... Even Vimes can disagree with someone who is doing somewhat the right thing or trying to do the right thing just in a different way than he would do the right thing. That's interesting conflict to me. Um, like, that's almost more interesting than the main conflict of the book. But especially, like, when William calls Vimes out on having, like, a surveillance detail put on him. You know, like, it's like where he's like, why did you feel the need to do that? It's like, well, you know, I had to. And then it's like, well, no one really asked you to do that. And, like, why do you get to decide that I need to be watched? You can see Vimes' perspective, the idea that he doesn't want William to get hurt. And he knows that William is going to get hurt. But on the other hand, it is surveillance, right? And so you can see that from from William's perspective as well. Although there's a lot about surveillance in this book in general, right? Because he, the Watcher watching him, Harry King's men are watching him, Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip are recording a conversation between them and Mr. Slant. Like, there's a lot about, like, unauthorized surveillance and people listening and watching each other, which is kind of a parallel to the press in general, right? I mean, what is the press if not people watching and listening and then making a story about what they hear and see? This book kind of operates under the hope as well that, like, benign surveillance can hold power to accountability, even if that is just, like, this weird cabal of noblemen, you know, yeah. like, with, with the the recording that William has at the end, which is very much like the Watergate recordings. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Okay. So I know I always ask you, like, when did you figure this out in the book? When did you figure out that Lord DeWord was behind everything oh not until the very end you didn't catch the thing about the what is it the the lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on yeah i saw that but then i was like because it said oh it's his father's expression but then Mm -hmm. i thought well this was just like a thing that his father like in the same way that i don't know like i associate certain phrases with certain of my parents or relatives but i know that it's not like a phrase exclusively that they made up so i figured it was just like something that his father was fond of saying, which is, like, also a saying that exists in the world? I don't know. Because it's also, like, looking back when they were talking about, like, you know, like, going to his house, 
And then, I, and then, but then only when William went to the end, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is actually what's going on. I was very perplexed by a lot of the things that happened in this book. I had to kind of be like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Multiple times. <laughs> what was the most perplexing thing for you? I don't know. I think like a lot of the stuff in the middle of the book leading up to where Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip show up dressed as Omnian missionaries, you know, to try and get <laughs> Wolfles. I was like, I had to like sit there for a second and then like flip back a couple pages and be like, wait, 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 wait. I was just generally confused by, like, the middle third of that book. And that may just be, like, my headspace while reading it. I don't know about you and, like, how you felt reading the plot. So my actual feelings about this book are it's not as good as I remember it being, but it still has some really good stuff in it. Mainly, I think, because as much as I find the new perspective interesting, and I really want to talk about William's perspective in this book... Even though I find that interesting, I feel like some of the relationships are not as well developed as we've seen in other books. And especially after reading a book like The Fifth Elephant, which just ha- is so masterful in its characterization and like deepening these characters and deepening these relationships. And it's very insightful and it's very subtle in some ways. This book just didn't seem as good in comparison. And again, that might be just because we just read The Fifth Elephant. But it just, it seemed like, okay, now we have to start over with this new character and we're going to hit this idea over the head really hard. And some of the relationships don't actually make sense. But there are some really good elements of this book. I would definitely say the parts are greater than the sum of the whole. I don't know, like, there's definitely a couple of books in Discworld where I feel like, well, the idea was kind of better than how it was executed. But I still really enjoyed reading it, if that makes sense. Like, I didn't actively want to put it down like pyramids or interesting times like i really enjoyed reading it it's just like now that i know now that now that we've seen what pratchett can do it's kind of hard to go back to some of these like kind of tropes that he relies on and that doesn't mean they're bad it just means uh, like i've seen what he can do now like let's let's go let's continue but i did want to also point out that this is the other side of the Watch's big crimes dilemma that we've been developing through the Watch books as well. Because, Mm. as you know, in the Watch books, what happens a lot of times when Vimes comes up against this conspiracy, because he does, right, in several of these books, he's not really able to do anything about it, right? Like, politics is the big crimes, as he says. Dragon King of Arms is, like, he can't really do anything about that. He can't really do anything about Rust. He can't really do anything about D, right, uh, in The Fifth Elephant. And he he's really frustrated by that. But the thing is, is that William can. And that's because he belongs in that world. And that's sort of the main conflict of the book is that for the most of the book, he doesn't want to belong in that world. And he's trying very hard not to. But then when he realizes that he can leverage that as power against the people who commit the big crimes, that he can use the paper as a sort of threat to those people He's more effective at this than Vimes is at this particular aspect because he's able to essentially blackmail his father into leaving the city and never coming back. That was a great scene. I I really like that because the whole thing is that everyone thinks that he's his father. Like there's a quote I highlighted at one stage where he's like, I guess I'll always be my father's son. And he's spending so long doing things that he thinks will like distance himself from his father. And then he ends up like, being exactly like him to get his father to leave. And 
the way that like that sickens him and his father is right. like, well, no, I'm going to do that this way. But, you know, like basically the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I don't know. That's kind of heartbreaking as like as a person who's like, well, I don't want to be anything like one of my parents. I feel like to have that moment where you realize that like something you you've done or like your whole life, you're not actually different to a person that you really, really despise. I feel like that's probably, probably very, very gut-wrenchingly, like, sickening. What did you think about William as a character? We should probably actually just talk about him. And, I mean, obviously a big part of it's his relationship with his father and the conflict that that brings. But what do you think about him as a character overall? William's a fucking nerd. <laughs> and I like that. Unapologetically, just a fucking nerd. And it's our first, like, really nerdy character. He's, he's an English nerd, too, which is our kind of nerd. He's not a, exactly. a physics nerd, like Ponder. Like, the whole thing is that Ponder, he's at the Unseen University, because, like, even if Ridcully doesn't understand what he's doing, he's in the right place to do it. Whereas, like, William is kind of, like, self-imposed social outcast because he wants to, like, do this newsletter instead of, like, doing what his family wants. William is one of the best parts of this book. They don't even actually tell us that much about his childhood beyond the fact that he went to this boarding school and that his father was horrible. But like you get these little like flashes of what certain events in his past have meant to him. The fact that his father was a bad uh, is a horrible father, is a horrible person, is very speciesist, is very classist in a lot of ways and he is trying so hard to like push back against that training that he's received which is something Otto compliments him on right he says like you're you're figuring it out like you're you know your father wouldn't have said thank you right you said thank you his brother was supposed to be the heir right and he's the one that they poured all of that time and energy into and then he died in Jingo like this is like a casualty of that very short war in which there were not very many casualties. And so you get you just get these little scenes, like them arguing after the funeral, just these references to things that have happened that clearly have this like traumatic like ripple effect through William's character. And I think that's actually very masterfully done by Pratchett here. Cause like nature versus nurture is a thing that like comes up an awful lot in books, like especially in sci-fi and fantasy, and especially when there's like a new technology type thing happening. Right. But I like that this book has, like, a character confront their biases and, like, be like, well, this is where my bias comes from and I'm making, like, I'm recognizing that this is ingrained in me. There's something that I really want to write, like, an article just called Confronting My Inner Bigot because, like, there's been times where, like, I've thought something, like, hateful and it's that's not me as a person and I have to go, like, well, why do why was that my, like, first reaction? And then I have to, like, sit with that, you know? All of us have internalized biases. All of us do. And part of being a person is being able to interrogate those biases and figure out where they come from and how to not let them control your actions. And I think that that's a big part of William as a character. What is it Otto says? He says, like, I've noticed how... You're so purposefully kind to the dwarves and to me, despite having been raised by someone who 
clearly thinks that we're lesser beings. And William like tries to brush it off. But Otto, I think very purposefully is saying like, I, I see the work you're doing to go against these internalized things. Because remember William, even his first reaction to Otto is like, it's a vampire, you know, like, like it's, it's very like, not necessarily like as bad as the reaction his father would have had, but he's very, it's still like kind of a microaggression, right? Of, oh, this is, is a dangerous person. But then like, yeah. he, you can see him throughout the book, like countering, he's constantly like saying, no, like Otto's a, you know, he's a person and he's someone I know and he's my friend and he is a teetotaler, right? Like we see more of the vampire alcoholism metaphor here that William has to like, challenge himself in that way but i also think that it's interesting that otto is able to recognize it and say like i appreciate what you're doing i know it's he says it's uh, it's hard to go against your nature yeah well because especially i think that's put into stark relief when otto goes to like save him from his father and the servants at the end and when he drops down yeah but where his, his his father calls otto an ish and otto is like well very well if you want me to behave like an ish so sidebar from William, let's talk about Otto. What did you think of Otto as a character? At first, I kind of had to, like, get over the speech, the way that Otto's speech is, like, written, uh, in the same way that I kind of had to, like, get over the way Igor's speech was was written. Right. I had to be like, is this, like, an insensitive thing? And I've kind of come up, I've kind of come down on the side, it doesn't seem to be. And then I really liked it. But there was also points where I was like, why is this TH a Z and this TH not a Z? I think it's because he's trying to not speak that way. I think it's like someone who's like trying to not have an accent, but they have such a thick accent that it comes through anyway. Yeah. He's trying so hard to be noble and to like do something that actually means something in terms of like the greater good. Because like we've had a few teetotaler vampires before. You know, especially in the fifth element. Um, and there was a fifth elephant, even. <laughs> like Margolotta. Yeah, like yeah. there's Margolotta, and then there was talk of the previous Count of Lanker, or previous, like, Countess of Lanker, who was a teetotaler, but was, like, a horrible human being. So, like, it's paired, like, it, you know, it's paired with that. Like, all of his character seems to be striving towards being his own person and being a noble person noble space person not noble person yeah he's the one who seems to understand william the most ganilla good mountain sort of understands william they have some really good conversations about william's father and race specifically or species really and but otto's the one who's like he understands what's going on with william like when he takes the obscurograph of William and he says, like, you don't have to spend very much time with William to know his father's always behind him. And the picture shows William with his father literally standing behind him. Yeah, which is a nice parallel with Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip, who have the ghosts of all the people who want them dead behind them. And like, I mean, right. William's father does try and get him killed then. That is true, or at least shipped off, right, to, to another place, which seems like a, r- a real rich person thing to do. But what's interesting about Otto, too, is that he is very aware of how quickly public opinion can change because vampires are used to mobs, right? And that's kind of like an undercurrent of his character. 
So like when the press is destroyed, he says, oh, it's always a mob, right? I know what this is like. But then when he meets William's father, Lord DeWord, he says, which again, I think works really well because we just saw this in The Fifth Elephant. Uh, he grabbed Lord DeWord's jacket and held him up in the air with one hand at arm's length. We have people like you back home, he said. They are the ones who tell the mob what to do. I come here to Ankh-Morpork. They tell me things are different, but really it is always the same. Always there are damn people like you. And now what shall I do with you? We just saw that in The Fifth Elephant, right? With Tatany and uh, the way that Uberwald is really like an oligarchy where it's the, the nobles and the werewolves and the dwarves and the vampires who all get to tell the watch what to do, right? They're the ones who are in control. And so it's interesting that Otto is able to come from that environment and say, yeah, Ankh-Morpork is a different city, but same shit still happens, right? It's still the people who are rich who, who get to, to lead the mobs, tell the mobs what to do. There's way more power, I think, in being able to get a mob to do something than, like, a lot of just ruling a city. So, like, there's this thing in Season 5 of The Good Fight where they're a, a very rich, conservative person who is supposed to be a stand-in for the, one of the Koch brothers who basically run a lot of the conservative politics in the U.S. Oh. They are very, very rich billionaires who donate a lot of money to conservative politics. They're very... In, intertwined with the tea party especially and there's this scene where he basically incites a mob of secessionists to violence and then walks away and that's kind of what i thought of when i saw this particular scene where Otto says you're the one who tells the mobs what to do because it does sometimes feel like especially in the u.s like rich people like the Koch brothers often will throw a match onto a fire and then walk away because they don't actually have to do anything. They have other people to do it for them. Yeah, it's very Trump telling the Proud Boys that he loved it, like, you know, they're loved and he, he's proud of them. You know, instead of like doing anything that a president should do, I don't know, just, just a thought maybe. In the same way that these Koch brothers, they could donate their billions to, I don't know, literally anything fucking else. I've never heard of these dudes before today. They're already on my shit list. But the good fight is so good. I can't stress that enough. I can stress an awful lot. Just about, like, most things. Ugh, it's gonna bother me. Anyway, it's basically Marissa Gold is this character on the good fight who, uh, she's the daughter of another character that was played by Alan Cumming on The Good Wife, which was the original show that The Good Fight is a spinoff of. You don't need to know that. This is a good fight, like, you could watch it as its own show. It doesn't really have a lot to plugging into The Good Wife. But she talks about with this angry mob who has basically chased her and this other person, like screaming and destroying stuff. And they've chased her into like this storage room and they've got like the door barricaded with a, a table. Mm. And, and, it's, and it's racial because she's Jewish and they're yelling like at her, like these racial slurs. And she says, and she's, she's talking to this other person and she's, she says, like, you know, I should have known. I should have known this was going to happen. Like, my father always said, and I'm paraphrasing here again because I can't find the exact quote, and it's a much longer speech that she gives. But she, my father always said, be careful about crowds. They'll love you until they turn on you. And, like, I think that that's so apt for this moment the, in the truth where they talk about mobs and they talk about the people who lead mobs and this idea that public opinion is very fickle. And so 
if you are the person who is giving them information, like William is saying he wants to give them information, you have a responsibility to know about how fickle the crowd is and to know that what you're doing could have consequences. There's a, an awful lot of that in the seventh, a series of unfortunate events book, The Vile Village, where they like both the Baudelaire orphans and Count Olaf and his troop incite the mob to believe different things, but Count Olaf's mob he incites them to burn a person at the stake and convinces them that it's okay to burn children at the stake. Uh, and Mr. Poe is kind of standing there and he doesn't like, he's ostensibly like, well, he's their financial controller. Like in the book and in the show, he stands to the one side and he's like, well, I guess this is bad, but like, we can't really go against the rules because mob rules. Right, exactly. Ma- what is it, uh, the the mob mind that we were talking about way back when we were talking about the Light Fantastic? Oh, the death of the mind, yeah. Death of the mind, yeah. Very similar to that. I think the mob is the most terrifying creature that probably exists on this good Earth. Good or bad or indifferent Earth at the minute. Like, the, you could convince enough people of something so abhorrent and they'll do it because they think it's true. That's the other thing she says. Marissa says hate is fun. That's what she says. That's why people do it. Hate is fun. Hate is so fun. It's clear cut. Look at us making connections between media and also books we talked about like half a year ago. Half a year ago. We've been doing this for a while. We're old. I'm (laughs) middle-aged. What did you think about William's struggle with journalism and the truth? It's what uh, Veterinary calls the news versus the olds. First of all, I like the fact that they've put the uh, the word olds into a book because that's something I used to always say as a like when I was growing up. I was like, well, why is it called the news plural? Like, what is the olds plural? No, I like that. There's a quote um, when they're printing the like latest edition towards the end of the book that really like this whole book is basically like, well, if it's the truth, then it's right. But then, like, if someone says something is the truth, then why is that right? I mean, even Vimes is suspicious of this because he says, like, does the truth hit you over the head if you, like, get it wrong? Like, you know, when w- William says he's answerable to the truth and Vimes is like, well, how do, how do, how are you answerable to the truth? Like, you know, does she, you know, like, does she come and complain? Like, what, you know, like, Vimes is, like, very confused by this idea that William has that he's answerable to the truth because for Vimes, it's like, well, who regulates that? Like, like what, who, who's in charge of deciding what that is? Yeah, and uh, I think that's, I think this quote is, like, really important to that, where it's, like, Ganilla and William and Sakharissa are talking about that Good Mountain inked the type, put a piece of paper over the story, and ran a hand roller over it. Wordlessly, he handed it to Sakharissa. Are you sure of all this, William? She said. Yes. I mean, some bits. Are you sure it's all true? I'm sure it's all journalism, said William. And what is that supposed to mean? It means it's true enough for now. This idea, like, true enough for now... And like then as well, the bit at the end of the book where it's talking about things are, you know, they're true enough to just like bring you to the next truth. Yeah, Sakharissa says like, you're, you think you're writing words that'll last forever. It's not like that. This newspaper stuff, that's words that last for a day, maybe a week. It's ephemeral truth. Yeah, no, I like that it's a more nuanced take than, well, what's in the paper is true. Because like we have the, you know, rival newspaper in this, which is all patently untrue. But I think 
the, the quote about it's true for like uh, a day or a week it just reminds me of you know the tweet about the queen where it's like well I bet Queen Elizabeth is glad for the 24 hour rolling news cycle as opposed to <laughs> her grandfather being euthanized to be you know to have his death favorably reported yeah. in a certain thing where it's like we need to make the king's death like as good a news story as possible whereas now when we have you know, like, when we have a 24-hour rolling news cycle, the words are all true, but they're not the same words. The words are constantly being replaced at a much faster speed than, like, right. type print news. Just made me think of that. It's I think it's so funny. Yeah. I think it's true, right? Journalism is a ephemeral type of media in which the words are being replaced all the time, and that what what one believes is true today might not be what one believes is true tomorrow because the facts are co- constantly evolving, right? But the problem is, and this is the question that I have of you, I think I have a very specific issue with part of this book, and I'm curious to know what you think. Does this book stand up in the age of the internet and social media and fake news and misinformation and disinformation, which are two different things. Is this book outdated in its views of journalism? Oh, absolutely. It's hard not to see how it couldn't be. But as well, because it was written in 2000s and it's hearkening back to what's ostensibly like the 1970s. And they're trying to use technology that is steampunk in nature, right? Like, it's like, yeah, it's the 70s journalism, but it's also steampunk because it's in the specific fantasy universe. And so there's no internet, right? Like, the closest we have is Hex, and that's it. <laughs> um, you know, like, you ever see that film The Post starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep? Nope. I haven't either, but it seems to have the same vibes of, like, you know... Like they're tr- or even I think parts of Spotlight, you know, where they're. I've seen Spotlight. Yeah, you know, like the press scenes in that, where they're like they're trying their best to do something with the press, but I think now, and especially like how quickly we're accelerating with mis, dis, and wrong information, you know, on the global news cycle, where you have to like I don't know where people go. I saw um someone was like. I can't remember what it was. Some celebrity death or something happening. And they were like, oh, please don't let me have found this out on Twitter. And someone responded with a screenshot of a Tumblr post that said, if you go to the circus for your news, don't complain when a clown tells you it. Yeah. But yeah, no, like people will just believe something they see because like it's on Facebook and they instantly believe. I remember like at the start of COVID, my father was just reading this like, fucking weird conspiracy theory about how you know like the virus was manufactured in a lab in wuhan and he was like oh this is true and so it was just because he saw that like this was kind of what i wrote part of my thesis on but like the opposite side of the spectrum how like fiction uses like real life evidence like you know fake documentary evidence to like sell that it's real i think it's the same thing for like why this book feels outdated because people see stuff and because it has this air of believability they just believe it at first uh, blush you could argue that this book does try to tackle that with the inquirer and the fact that it's posting which is supposed to obviously be like a tabloid it's oh it's explicitly um the sun from the uk 
And so the idea that like people will just believe that because it's there, I mean, that is that is the case, right? When the paper is being read around the breakfast table at William's boarding house, like there is this idea of like, well, they it wouldn't if it was in the paper, it must be true. They wouldn't let them put it in otherwise. There is sort of that air of that. But the problem is that I find in this betrayal is the idea that journalism is for the public interest, but not necessarily what the public is interested in, which I enjoy. I think that that's good. But the problem with this comes in when they try to give balance in the newspaper, in the Times, in the Ankh-Morpork Times, to someone who is straight up speciesist, along with the other letters. I don't know if you caught that scene. Yeah, the notion of like journalistic balance is something that pisses me off so much. There's um, there's a Darrow Brian bit that like really gets into it. He starts off talking about like homeopaths and stuff, you know, where people are like, oh, well, like it's water, you know, what harm can you do? You can't get sick from it. No, but you can fucking drown. But then talking about how like, I don't know, this this idea that you have to turn to someone with, like, the opposite viewpoint because viewers or readers aren't intelligent enough to make thing, make their minds up for themselves, where he's, like, talking about, like, we're talking to this head astrologist from NASA or whatever, and then we turn to Barry, and Barry is someone who thinks the sky is a carpet painted by God. And then they, like, yeah. laugh at this scientist from NASA with his, like, actually informed thing. I know, I, like, it's a very benign aspect of it, but even... Yeah. So what I what I have here is the there was one saying that all these robberies were down to dwarfs who shouldn't be allowed into the city to steal the work out of honest humans mouths. Put a title like letters on the top and put them in, said William, except the one about the dwarves. That sounds like Mr. Windling. It sounds like my father, too, except for except that at least he can spell undesirable and wouldn't use crayon. (laughs) <laughs> Why not that letter? Because it's offensive. Some people think it's true, though, said Sacharissa. There's been a lot of trouble. Yes, but we shouldn't print it. William called Good Mountain over and showed him the letter. The dwarf read it. Put it in, he suggested. It'll fill a few inches. But people will object, said William. Good. Put their letters in, too. And that scene is supposed to tell us the journalists and the newspaper and the media should, like, show all points of view. But as we know now... <laughs> It is better to deplatform those points of view than it is to give them airspace. It's like saying the trans debate. And it's like, well, what are you debating? That trans people shouldn't exist? Well, then it's not a debate, right? It's just you saying that you don't think that these people are real people. And that's not a viewpoint that I see as valid in any sort of way. Like the, you, Basically, giving fascism a platform is not a debate, yeah. right? You're just platforming them. And so it's kind of like it's something that's been in like a discussion a lot, right? Especially because like newspapers, both in the UK and in the US, are doing this thing recently where they've decided to platform a lot of anti-trans activists. Oh, yeah. TERFs, I should say. In the name of showing both sides, but then they don't actually talk to real trans people, which is not showing both sides. That's just platforming TERFs. It's like, here we go, we've got virulent transphobia in the news, and for balance, we're talking to Gary, who one time had to put on a pair of his wife's sandals to go out and get the shopping from the car, and there you go, that's balance. Thank you, Rupert Murdoch. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) And they'll just let these people say the most hateful things in their newspaper with no kind of, like, context 
or anything like that. And they treat it like it's two sides of a, a debatable issue when it's not. And, you know, like, I'm sorry. The only way to deal with fascists is to like punch them in the face. Like, and so is it okay to punch a Nazi in the face? It is always okay to punch a Nazi in the face. I just don't. I I don't think that ages well. And like when Vetinaria says at the end, like I hope we don't pull together. Only dictators and and despots want people to pull together. I also kind of found that like, well, yeah, but where's the responsibility? Like, they're just, it seems like there's a lot in this book about truth and what truth is and what it's not and temporary truth, but there's no sense that, like, there should be a responsibility, right? Like, there should be people that journalists have to answer to. There should be a sense of information literacy within a society like this. And it just... I just don't think this book is able to have that conversation. And part of that might be the time it was written in. Part of that might be the limits of this particular genre to talk about those issues. But it just kind of rings a little false now. The thing that's most realistic to today's like political and like news climate is the bit at the end where the newspaper has you know said that veterinary is completely innocent and people just straight up don't believe it. You know? Yeah, that, that was the closest. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely definitely saw but that. it's weird that like this is the technology that they've chosen to go forward with because like veterinary calls attention to this and what i don't know i was really amused by the fact that like the Discworld suddenly got very self-aware when he talked about all the different things that have happened hold on i highlighted the quote because i think it's just very funny when one has been ruler of this city as long as i have he said one gets to know with a sad certainty that whenever some well-meaning soul begins a novel enterprise, they always, with some kind of uncanny foresight, sight it at the point where it will do maximum harm to the fabric of reality. There was that Hollywood moving picture fiasco a few year- years ago, yes. And that music with rocks business not long after. We never got to the bottom of that. And of course the wizards seem to break into the dungeon dimension so often, they might as well install a revolving door. And then he talks about uh, Mr. Hong's takeaway, which we still don't really know the occasion of. But it's weird that, like, music with rocks in and the Hollywood film industry disappear at the end of the book. And, like, yeah, it's hinted that, that they're cycles. But I thought for sure when the press blew up that it would be just like, well, we're going to return to stasis. The newspaper printing press is going to continue on in Ankh-Morpork. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that we're going to see in later books. We're going to see William and Zacharissa, like, doing their jobs, which is reporting on the news. Like you say, this, you know, that it feels like this sort of genre isn't the type of place to have this discussion, but this is like the first piece of technology that Pratchett is explicitly like, yeah, you can stay in the disc world, but then he doesn't do enough to... Well, the clacks. Yeah, but but there's not a whole book about the clacks coming, you know what I mean? Well, part of it is because the press is not tied to the eldritch, you know, dungeon dimension, Lovecraftian things that the other... That the, those other books were, which to me shows that Pratchett has moved on from those ideas, right? In a lot of ways, he's not interested in them anymore. He's interested in in how technology causes these paradigm shifts, which Vetinari also talks quite a bit about. I love though that Vetinari is like, and you're sure that Mister Dibbler is not part of this? Yeah, and then it turns out he <laughs> is. He's writing articles for the Inquirer. Yeah, what did you think about Mister Dibbler's role? You know. You know how I feel about Cut Me On Throat, Dibbler. (laughs) 
and I liked as well that he seems kind of like vaguely ashamed throughout this whole book. Like I don't know, that's yeah. that's that's an outfit we're not used to seeing Dibbler wearing. He's kind of down right at the beginning of the book because another one of his enterprises has gone awry. And so he's feeling kind of depressed and this causes him to actually take a job with someone else. And he even says at the end, he's like, next time I'm just going to go lie down until it passes. This was not, this was not worth it. I don't know. It's very like, uh, you know, Phoebe Bridgers in I Know the End being like, well, I'll go home and I'll lay around and I'll get up and lay back down. I mean, Cut Me On Throat Dibbler has his own mental health issues, right? Like, he, he gets depressed. He gets sad. I, I get yeah. it. Yeah. Especially because, like, I understand. in both soul music and moving pictures, he, like, was like, I'm going to be the boss. Yeah, and now he's not. And I think that that makes him more depressed. And that's why at the end he's like, I'm not doing this again. Yeah, and Saul Dibbler is nowhere <laughs> to be I, seen. I thought was great. I also really liked that Otto references music with Roxanne. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, music this rocks in. Yeah, he gets the weather to respond to his uh, his dramatic pauses. He's like, music with rocks in. Rock and roll, baby, right? But yeah, I think the last thing I'll say about the information literacy thing, I think I finally have marshaled my thoughts together on this, is that William seems to think, and by extension, the narrator seems to think, that if he just talks to enough people about a certain event... That despite the fact that people contradict each other and they remember things differently and they lie and they have different points of view, like some of them are really speciesist, some of them aren't, that if he talks to enough of them and he puts everything that they say into the newspaper, that people will be smart enough to discern the truth, that eventually they will arrive at the truth through consensus. And I think that that is a very dangerous thing to think, especially as we now know that people don't have the information literacy to be able to do that. Like, policing by consent of the community works for the watch. I Like like you say, it's a really dicey thing when you're like, well, we'll get the truth by average. It's very populist, this idea that, like, people will get together and they will sort of manage to stumble on something together. That's right. Or the truth. The book goes ahead and, like, straight up, like, before that happens, points out how that's a ludicrous notion, where, like, enough people planted a rumor that veterinary assaulted Drumnot and tried to make off with an insane amount of money, that, like, people still believe it, despite the fact that a newspaper, like, solved the crime, you know? So, like, even before we get to William saying that, the book has already proven that it's kind of a dumb idea. Nowhere do we have that thing where it's, like, belief of the narrative is different from the belief of the protagonist it kind of just feels like it's forgotten the thing it's already you know like when you start an essay and you're like these are my points and you get into your paragraphs and you're like what was i writing about again and then you just kind of like stumble through a conclusion it's kind of like the whole truth shall set you free motto that they put at the top of the times which truth shall make you fret is one of my favorite moments in Mm. this book shout Um, out to the podcast i think that's more accurate the truth shall make you fret a fellow Discworld podcast. Fine Discworld podcast. The truth shall make you free is from the Bible. I like that William says, like, I like how it means a lot without meaning anything at all. And that's kind of how I feel about this particular thread of the truth as a novel, is that, like, it means a lot without really meaning anything at all. That's kind of where I come down on this book. 
Yeah, no, it really doesn't. Like, it's it's definitely a case of, like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's kind of how I feel, is that there's a lot in this book that I liked. There was a lot of things that made me think. But at the end of the day, I don't think they actually added up to something that makes sense or that rings true to to be weirdly meta about it. Yeah. But let's talk about some of the more interesting parts of this novel that I found, at least I found them more interesting. The first is our antagonists, Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip, who are the enforcers of this conspiracy that's being led by Lord DeWord. I think that they are supposed to be a reference to Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid from Diamonds Are Forever, but less homophobic and ableist. What did you think about these two characters? Hold on. I need to Google. I need to Google it to get their names right. Because it reminded me of Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, but it also reminded me of, I won't say the book, just so, you know, we can have a bit of mystery while I Google. We get some elevator music in. Kevin McLeod got any, um, any nice royalty-free elevator music, I'm sure. <laughs> I was also going to say there's a lot of Pulp Fiction references in this, too. So... It makes sense that like they would you could also compare them to the the two uh, hitmen that are at the center of Pulp Fiction. No, who I was thinking of were Perry Edward Smith and Richard Hickok, the people who killed the uh, Cutler, the Clutter family, in the, the one that um, Truman Capote wrote about in In Cold Blood. Oh yeah, okay yeah, I could see that. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, the only reason I think that is just because, like, I had to read the book for class, which was, like, a while ago, but, like, you know, he interviewed them extensively, so you have, like, POV sections from them where they're, like, driving around and stuff, and I don't know, it felt like that. Quick English side note. Okay. What do you think about the theory that Harper Lee actually wrote that book? Oh, I'm so, I'm so down for it. Like, in class, um, our lecturer showed the slide, which is a photo of Truman Capote and Harper Lee. And and she was like, and who does anyone just quick question, does anyone know who this is beside Truman Capote? And I was the only person in the class who was like, That's Harper Lee. And then she was like, um, why why would it be that? and I was like, Well, cause like Truman Capote kind of ran around interviewing people and then was like, Yeah, I'll remember that and then Harper Lee was like the one actually doing all the shit um for it. Yeah, she was definitely recording all the interviews. Yeah, and also because, like, Truman Capote's other stuff kind of doesn't feel the same way that In Cold Blood does. And I think that may be in part, like, the genre, but also, like, fundamentally, it feels closer to parts of, like, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Oh, there's, like, this this weird, like, 16th century play where no one knows whether it was written by Marlowe, Kiss, or Shakespeare. It's, like, Edward of Aversham or something like that. Because, like, when you read it, certain parts read like them. And, like, a lot of In Cold Blood reads like Harper Lee. I'm very much a fan of this theory, especially because it makes sense to me that Harper Lee didn't write another book because she was so busy looking after Truman Capote. <laughs> and so, like, she actually had a hand in making sure that he wrote or that she actually wrote some of his stuff. I just I, What I think is hilarious is that, like, Basically, his next book after In Cold Blood was, like, him trying to publish a bunch of things, like, high society people had told him in confidence, and that essentially kind of blacklisted from everything. Yeah. So, like, he's not really the smartest of writers. No, he's not. Absolutely not. 
Terry Pratchett said when asked, you know, who these two were based on because people were making these connections, he said fiction and movies are full of pairs of bad guys that pretty much equate to Pin and Tulip with two guys. One can always explain the plot to the other. I mean, we haven't really seen a pair like this in the disc world before. So what did you think about Pin and Tulip? I mean, they were kind of scary, I think, meant like in a, in a menacing way we've never seen. Like we've had pure terrifying villains but this is like a, a weird kind of menace. You know, honestly, I mean, like I said, and like Pratchett said, you could compare them to any number of, of duos in pop culture. But honestly, it really, the the sense of menace and the sense of these are two people who complete jobs with absolutely no, absolutely no compunctions about what they have to do in order to complete those jobs. It really, really brought Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid into mind. Because those mm-hmm. two people in Diamonds Are Forever, regardless of the homophobia and the and the ableism and all of that stuff, they're really terrifying. Like they are like people who literally seem to have no no line that they wouldn't cross. And I don't mean that in an insanity sort of way, like Tia Taima or Wolfgang, right? Um, who are clearly like insane characters. Like these people don't seem insane. They're just people doing their job. Yeah. Like that's this is and this is what they see as their job. When Mr. Tulip dies and he has all the like lifetimers in front of him, the one person will like in the house at the wrong time and they just kill him. Like I don't know, that kind of like completely unnecessary death where they were just like, well, this person is in our way. It's a weird comparison but like ridcully in a way where their mind is like a train on a track that's very hard to divert and they'll just take the straightest path to get there except with much more homicidal intent. What did you think about their dynamic? Gay as fuck. Yeah? You think so? I thought they were gay. Okay. I'm allowed to think murderers are gay. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I agree too. I just, I was curious because, like, we've talked about this before on the Bond podcast that we did yeah. for Monkey Off My Backlog. I, I Sorry I keep bringing these two up, but we've talked about how Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd their depiction is incredibly homophobic in in that movie. And I believe from Sam, who has read the book that they're based on, which I think it's her ma- on Her Majesty's Secret Service is actually the book that they're in. You know, she has also said that they are very homophobically portrayed in that as well. What do you think the difference is between the queerness in this book between these two characters and those two characters? I mean, I think Terry Pratchett is an infinitely more competent and sensitive writer than Ian Fleming ever was, first off. I mean, true. First things first, I'm a realist, drop that, let the whole world feel it. <laughs> the No, but also, like, I don't know, part of what makes the homophobia of Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid stand out so much is the way that they're, like, depicted in this weirdly, like, fetishized version of what being in... A relationship with another, like, with a, you know, like a man being in another relationship with a man is. And we don't get any of that with, uh, Mr. Tulip and Mr. Pin. It's entirely, and this is the best, this is one of the, um, queer community's favorite words, subtext. It is subtext. So what was the subtext you picked up on? I don't know, just their entire vibes. Although, like, I mean, it kind of is, it kind of is queer to, like, kill your partner in fiction. That seems to be, you know, like, <laughs> like when people headcanon two people as, like, being gay for each other, 
an awful lot of the time one ends up like being killed by the other directly or indirectly. And I don't know what that says about the internet and how it views queer-coded characters. I don't know, just their whole dynamic. And especially, like, is it Mr. Tulip who, like, wants to be a fine art connoisseur? And, like, when they're talking about the Candelabras... He is a fine art connoisseur! He, like, knows all about this stuff. Yeah, it feel- no, but it feels like he'd much rather be a fine art connoisseur. And is it also Mr. Tulip who's, like, desperately wants to have a drug addiction? Yes, he's trying so hard to have a drug addiction, but he keeps buying things that aren't drugs. <laughs> that they're just chemicals. Yeah, and then we're mist- and then Mr. Pin, it, it, just, like, the way he talks to him after, like, a few of those moments. I don't know. I read that as gay. I bought something which I thought was drugs off the street. Well, I didn't buy it. I was given it. This was, like, at a very low point in my life, um, emotionally and physically. I thought it was cocaine in a bag off the street, and so I was like, you fuck it, sure, why not? Is this something I can admit to on the podcast, or will I get in legal trouble? I don't know. I mean, it wasn't cocaine. I went. I just went like, yeah, sure. I humored this guy on the street, because he, like, stepped out in front of us. And he was like, do you want some coke with this bag in his hand? And I was like, well, I'm going to defuse a threat. I'll just say yes. And so I went, yeah, there you go. It was baking flour. Oh. Yeah, straight up my nose. That sounds horrible. It was horrible, but but the guy then just left us alone. So, like, I was low enough where I was like, yeah, the only feasible way to get out of the situation is <laughs> say yes to what may or may not be a bag of coke. <laughs> I think what balances this is that we have plenty of other queer relationships in these mm. books to kind of balance out. Because the whole point about like Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid is that, well, they're gay and they're villains, whereas Bond is like straight and he's the hero, you know? And then yeah, it's just like what we talked about with the fifth elephant, where like it's okay that D is the villain because of her internalized transphobia, because we have so many other trans characters who are not villains in these books, especially Cherry. And so yeah. she doesn't have to hold the entirety of trans representation on herself because she's not the only trans character in that book. So it it kind of diffuses what potentially could be transphobia, which we see in, in films like Silence of the Lambs, for an instance. Like we said, like her her doing evil things isn't explicitly because of her internalized transphobia like she does the stuff and then it's revealed and then she like talks about this internalized transphobia and how people can do things that uh she wasn't able to but like because of society and so it's like well this was maybe a precipitating factor but it's not like the real thing she's just kind of like went a bit insane and did this I think that that's true of these characters, too, is that if they're if they're gay, you know, the subtext and all of that stuff, we do have other relationships that are presented to us, even in this book, because we know that Ganilla Good Mountain wants to get married to Botany, who is another dwarf. And despite the fact that even William is just like, he doesn't like comment on it, right? Like, he's just kind of like, you know, oh, like it's because the way they ha figure out gender. And I love the footnote that we're given 
Most dwarves were still referred to as he as well, even when they were getting married. It was generally assumed that somewhere under all that chainmail, one of them was female, and both of them knew which one this was. But the whole subject of sex was one that most traditionally minded dwarves did not discuss, perhaps out of modesty, possibly because it didn't interest them very much, and certainly because they took the view that what two dwarves decided to do together was entirely their own business. So to me, that really opened the door to the fact that, like, I think outsiders assume that dwarves, dwarfish couples are all straight, but actually not all dwarfish couples are straight. Like, yeah. that, that is actually what that last phrase told me was that like, oh, it's their business. They're transphobic as a society, but they're actually not homophobic <laughs> because mm. they don't care. Right. Like, they're just like, they're dwarves. They do whatever they want. You know, like we we're not going to get involved. Yeah, no, I, I like that. But it's also it's always funny seeing like cultures in fiction or like people in real life being like well i don't have this one prejudice but i do have another prejudice that's like equally as bad but that's true of a lot of gay cis people right like there are yeah. gay cis people that are transphobic horribly transphobic like the whole thing with the potato uh, and so like then i because i wanted to like see whether we had seen them before as part of the new firm thing so when i had finished the book i went onto the Discworld fandom wiki and like we haven't, but I don't know, it's saying that like, you know, it's kind of hinted at that he grew up in a famine, you know, when there wasn't an awful lot of, you know, like where they're talking about the candlesticks and their pure gold. Tulip did. I don't know. We don't know about Pin, but Tulip did. Yeah. I like the belief that like, you know, if you have a potato, you'll be sorted. F- brings, I don't know, just brings to mind the Irish potato famine as an awful lot of things do. And I don't know, then it just got me thinking about like, cultural irishness and especially how it's depicted in fiction and especially because of the like new lord of the rings show where the harfoots have these weird like horrible stage irish accents uh, and are essentially doing famine cosplay i i'm curious to know what you think about tulip because we're told throughout the book that he has a lot of trauma that he is actively suppressing right like he actively does not want to think about it he's trying to get a drug addiction so he doesn't have to think about it he won't talk about it with pen the way he censors his swears is something that i also do myself sometimes where he's like ing and then sakarissa does it later i like the the difference between sakarissa doing it and tulip doing it is that she just says ing you know yeah if you don't ing get it i'm going to ing blow your ing head off or whatever it is she says when she takes over the press at the end. But, like, with Mr. Tulip, it's always, like, this... Uh, is it an M-dash? It's not a hyphen. Yeah, it's, like, an M-dash. It's like he's censoring it. Like, there's a pause. Yeah, he's censoring it. Like, there's something that should be there. Or, like, that's where the trauma lives. But we get a sense of what that trauma was when he's talking to death in the desert after he dies. And he says, uh, All I know is you got to have your potato, and then it'll be all right. Mr. Tulip parroted the sentence without thinking, but it was coming back now in the total recall of the dead from a vantage point of two feet off the ground and three years of age. Old men mumbling, old women weeping, shafts of light through holy windows, the sound of wind under the doors and every ear straining to hear the soldiers. Us or theirs didn't matter when a war had gone on this long. And then skipping down, the sound of wind under the doors, the smell of oil lamps, the fresh acid of snow blowing through the candlesticks they'd been made of gold hundreds of years ago 
There were only ever potatoes to eat, grubbed up from under the snow, but the candlesticks were of gold. And some old woman, she'd said, it'll turn out all right if you've got a potato. And so I want to unpack that a little bit with you, especially in the context of what you said about like the Irishness of it, because I do feel like there are some connections there, perhaps, with Irish history and sort of that trauma, right? But he has essentially believed something his entire life that if you have a potato that you'll be fine. And then he sort of realizes at the end of this that it wasn't a religion. It was just an old woman trying to comfort him by giving him a potato. Well, he believes in it that strongly enough that when the potato is stolen from him, he's the one who has it in the afterlife, not Mr. Penn. Right, and and that's what Death says. Like, you believe so much in this, but you don't believe in anything. I thought that was a very interesting moment. But what did you think about his trauma and the way it's sort of slowly unpacked? It's supposed to be connected both to his belief about the potato, his trauma and violence and anger, but also with his art connoisseurship. Because he remembers the art from his childhood. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I'm going to like set this or set this one down straight out the gate um, for people who don't know. The potato famine was not just a shortage of potatoes in Ireland. It was enforced starvation and cultural genocide done by the English. So like it makes an awful lot of sense for, you know, talk of soldiers and like for there to be this like trauma because like, as well, I don't know whether people know this, the Irish population used to be like 8 million people pre-famine. And that many people died or emigrated at risk of their own life on coffin ships to America as well. That, like, we haven't actually reached the level of population we were, like, 200 years ago. And we're one of the only, like, countries in the world where that's ever happened. Right. You know, and, like, that was, it was such a staple that, like, yeah... We had all this like lovely religious art from the Catholic tradition, which was enforced on us by Catholic missionaries and also like pagan art and stuff. But like it really didn't do an awful lot of good. So I I don't know. It makes an awful lot of sense to me. I'm not really making a point. It just makes a lot of sense. Now, obviously, this is no excuse to like go out and murder people. But I, I understand that like, you know, because like seeing the people you love starve or like be killed by soldiers is something that's going to fuck you up irreparably, especially if you also like lived through that as well. Like, you know, going hungry as a child, especially like yeah. when you're having those like formative moments. Yeah. And the only thing you have to cling to is an old woman telling you that like things are going to be okay. If you, and like the fact that it's a potato, I don't know. Like it feels very like stereotypically like, oh, Paddy, you know, like lucky charms leprechaun to be like, well, a potato, but you know. But there's no other Irish trappings on this character. Like he doesn't speak in an Irish accent or have yeah. any like. So I wonder if that was purposeful to make that connection without trying to make him into a stereotype. Oh, yeah, like, that's not what I'm saying. I, you know, it, just, it feels weird to be like, well, it's because of the potato that I know he's Irish. But yeah, no, like, I don't know. Like, that's a thing that I'm, I don't know, in tune with because I'm Irish, but also because, like, I don't know, an awful lot of people outside of Ireland don't know Irish history, even in England. They don't yeah. know about, like, the 1916 Rising, the Civil War, the War of Independence, even the Troubles in the North. Like, I met people in college... You know, like when I was in first year, when they had first come to Ireland, 
and they had no idea. And then they like bought a book being like the history of Ireland to like get to know. And, th- and then they came back to me and they were like, wait, what the fuck? Hold on. You had like a civil war. I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we did. We had a declaration of independence and everything. I mean, that's true in the U.S. too. Like, I don't think very many people from the U.S. know a lot about Irish history, but they also we know an awful lot about your lot. history. We're I made learned in school. We like to export our history, but a certain version of our history. We, yeah, we like to export our people. Ireland's greatest cultural export is its young people. And that's very true in American history, too, because a lot of Irish people immigrated to the U.S. So, Mm. yeah. I think it's interesting to contrast the two characters as well, because although they do get along so well and have that queer subtext, like you mentioned, Mr. Tulip is the most violent of the two. And the most angry of the two. And we're given this sort of slowly unfolding backstory for him. We don't have any backstory for Mr. Pin at all. But he seems to almost be the more evil of the two. He's kind of the brains of the operation. And oftentimes he's the one who sort of like, you know, points Mr. Tulip towards, you know, this is the person you need to kill or this is the person you need to, to rough up. Yeah, no, and as well, the fact that he has no qualms about killing Mr. Tulip to save himself from the molten lead, and, like, you know, he yes. uses him as a raft. I don't know, there's something that's, like, like the, qui- the the rapidity with which he does it feels more evil than, like, framing Veninari or, like, killing people who get in your... Because we've seen people who've done that before in, in Discworld. Like, we've seen the Ghana... Right directing people to do that you know we've seen you know like povs of oh what's the guy in the the dwarf bread uh museum you remember how he gets killed we like yeah we get like you know the pov of him just before he gets killed in feet of clay yeah yeah so like that's not something we've that's not something we're not used to but like just the fact that He's so quick to turn on Mr. Tulip. I don't know, that's more, it feels more wrong to me, morally. Especially because Mr. Tulip is, like, relying on him. Like, he trusts him to get them out of this situation. And in the end, he's just looking after himself and not Mr. Tulip. What did you think about the unraveling of Mr. Pin, who starts out as a very, like, smart and very astute person who's known for his intelligence in these situations and both the obscure graph that Otto takes of him that shows like the shadows behind him which by the way is a terrifying image like I think of all the images Pat Pratchett has given us the idea of living shadows like with screaming faces coming out behind someone that's terrifying but between that and just Ankh-Morpork as a city Pin like unravels through the course of the book because they go from, like, this kind of, like, mafia outfit, essentially. That's what they feel like. You know, they're kind of the, the hired guns for this thing. Uh, and it feels very much like, and I'm, this is where I'm going to sneak in my Nigel Quotes the Mountain Goats for this episode. I mean, there's, like, a lot of songs I could have quoted from, uh, you know, about, like, people in suits and people hiding. Or whatever. I don't know, I'm just thinking of, like, the description of the guys on the corner from Guys on Every Corner. You know, it's like from the front door to the shop to the bakery, uh, you know, to the drugstore. I've got guys on every corner, uh, you know, and that they're, that they're always watching. I don't know. I keep thinking about the fact that he just goes insane, whereas, like, 
Mr. Tulip, like, has a lot of things wrong with him, but he kind of, like, keeps a careful lid on it. In as much as he can. But it's interesting that Pin is driven insane by the Obscurograph because he suddenly realizes that he's done a lot of evil in his life and that that might be something that catches up to him in the afterlife. And so he's trying to figure out how to maybe cheat that, those consequences, right, for what he's done. But the interesting part is, is that when he does get to the afterlife, he treats the potato like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, whereas Tulip, who doesn't have any, he doesn't seem to have any sense of conscience about what he's doing throughout the book when he dies and death shows him his life as seen through other people's eyes he's the one who's like i'm gonna have to sit here forever and think about what i've done and actually come up with some sorrow and that's gonna take a long time because i've done a lot of evil so it's interesting to see the juxtaposition between these two characters and where they eventually end up after they die yeah, because Mr. Pin shows up and straight away he's like, oh yes, I'm definitely sorry. Like, trying to just bypass that as quickly as possible. Whereas, like, I don't know, Mr. Tulip feels like he's very actually, like, remorseful that it's never occurred to him that, like, other people, like, these people should have been alive. But now they're not. Because, like, what's it he asks death? is like, is this the part where my life flashes before my eyes and death says now? And he says what? And he's like, no, the part where your life flashes before your eyes, that that's the now. This is afterwards. Well, and I like how he asks Death, like, does being sorry mean anything? Like, does it even mean anything compared to what I've done? And Death says, in this place, which is the desert, right? He says, in this place, sorrow takes a shape. It means something. Yeah. They're probably going to find Vorbis still there. <laughs> yeah, still there eventually. What did you think about when Death pulls out the Death of Rats for Pin? I liked that because it's a surprise. Like, yeah. every other human we've seen collected by Death of Rats has been like, the Death of Rats has just shown up. And it's like, well, this person has some sort of spiritual affinity, for the most part, with like feeling like a rat. There was one villain before as well right yeah the in in soul music it's the the musicians guild leader yeah who yeah yeah and i wonder maybe that might be just like a rap pack reference but yeah i don't know this, this seems to be the, like the icing on the cake of the like mr pin is the true monster of the that duo where it's like you know like he he unravels and he's done these monstrous things whereas mr tulip like has a lot of baggage but he seems to be genuinely remorseful for it whereas like so like you know he gets the death that appears to humans whereas i don't know mr pin is kind of like a rodent uh, an animal not human what is it? You can't kill an animal. You put an animal down. Is that that's what uh, Vime says in earlier books? Kind of, and it's also like like it feels very um, Egyptian mythology. You know where they weigh your heart against a feather and see whether you come up wanting. And they both get second lives. Pin becomes a potato, <laughs> which seems ironic, and uh, and Tulip becomes a woodworm. I oh, know. I just I like that the desert isn't explicitly like a christian afterlife or like concept of even purgatory 
And then, like, we get things which feel, you know, close to other real world religions in, in however they relate to, like, religions on the disc. I don't know. I like that, especially because just that, like, it seems to be that they were judged and found wanting and then they got reincarnation. Because there is this sense that if you believe something on the disc world, that that is going to happen, right? Like, if you believe in reincarnation, you're going to be reincarnated. If you believe in a certain afterlife, you will eventually get there, right? Like, belief shapes reality. And we even get this from death a lot of times, right? And we even get it in this book when he tells Mr. Tulip, like, I hate it when they leave this to me, (laughs) right? Like, when, you know, who's expecting you, basically? Like, what, you know, what do you expect to happen now? But... What's interesting, though, is that there is a balance between that belief system and justice, right? Which is weird because death says there is no justice, there's just me. But on the other hand, like, Pin doesn't get what he wants, right? Or he does, but it's like a twisted version of what he wants. Yeah, he he goes a couple steps down the karmic ladder. Right, and Tulip it doesn't really work the way he thinks it does either. And so it's, it is very interesting to me that belief shaping reality, like Vorbis, right? I'm sure Vorbis believed in some afterlife that didn't include him being lost in the desert forever, but there is right. Lost in the desert forever. And so there is, there does seem to be this balance in the disc world between those types of belief systems and getting what you deserve And I wonder if that links into the idea that Lucifer, the television show, has that we create our own hells because on some level we know that we have done the wrong thing, even if we don't believe that purposefully. I like that as an idea just because, like, the Lucifer TV show is based off of, like, the Lucifer from Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Right. I don't know, just like more further links between Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman I like. Like in the Sandman TV show where they're like, they they make you carry your own fire to hell. And if you just yes. didn't believe, if you didn't believe that you were going to be punished for the like awful things you've done, you wouldn't be in hell. You'd be in the Silver City. Exactly. And so uh, it does bring up some really interesting questions about like, what are the limits of a belief-based system? But like you said, I do like that it is essentially like, not it's not the same for everyone on the disc right because why would it be that doesn't make any sense it doesn't fit into the 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 idea that belief shapes reality that the disc has been telling us this entire time yeah what did you think of the obscurograph experimentations that Otto was doing i thought they were pretty cool i mean i always like things that are like anti something you know, be that, be that like anti light in this, anti life in DC Comics, uh, even like Nega Scott and Scott Pilgrim versus the world where his evil or his like alter self is just like a really nice guy because Scott Pilgrim's kind of a horrible dude. Right. <laughs> I always like opposites of like, what you think are solid concepts. So the fact that it runs off of this dark light, which is made by like these massive, like black eels. I I don't know. Eels are pretty cool as well. I think it's a really cool image. And the fact that it's like not time-based, like it, it sort of shows you like stuff that isn't time 
but it's also it shows you what's really there but that doesn't necessarily mean it's stuck it's there in right one now. moment in time and it also doesn't mean it's stuck in that reality right i think that's, that's pretty cool and like big up big up auto for like you know knowing how to work that i love auto as an artist i love that he has the the mind of like a steampunk well, actually, it's more Renaissance artist, right? Like the type of person who wants to invent new technology to accomplish his art. I appreciate that. Yeah. I do love that Cherry, who is also from Uberwald, is like, I was not expecting that here. Get out right now. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> she was just like, no, not fucking with this. I, I feel like also, like, we have to assume now that the Discworld follows some sort of like linear chronology now where it's like this book takes place after this book therefore it must take place a certain amount of time after it you know because like it's a couple years between this book and moving pictures well it'd have to be because Vetinari talks about the situation with uberwald and like we have a good trade agreement now don't fuck it up yeah, no, but that's what I mean. Like, it, it's obvious. Like, it can't have been that long after you know all that happened to them in Uberwald as well. So I feel like Otto showing up and reminding Cherry of like her home, just probably like a really sore spot. Oh, absolutely. I can definitely see that. I did want to also talk about just the watch. We've talked about Vimes a lot, although we didn't mention what is possibly one of my favorite Vetinari lines in this is when Vetinari is talking to. William at the end and he says try not to upset Vimes too much will you <laughs> which is which is great because it's almost like Vetinari saying I'm the one who gets to wind him up not you <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. well you say you say you don't think Vetinari would ever apologize I mean I think it's as close as he's ever come to pushing Vimes too far that one time right. like don't upset him too much it says he realizes it but this is as close as I think we're going to get to like and I'm sorry and of course, it's not given to Vimes. Right, it's given to William instead. I do like that where where um, William is talking to like Mister Slant, and he's like, "We're gonna leave this buried, you understand?" But also, like, you know what they call Vimes? He's Veterinary's terrier, and they dig and dig, and they won't stop until they find. Ah, I love their dynamic. I also really liked that when William is doing that thing where he's interviewing Lord Downey, and Vimes is there. And he basically talks the guilds, like, he he manipulates the guilds into giving Vimes a medal, basically. And Vimes is, like, so angry about it. But it kind of echoes that ending of the watchbooks that we usually get, where Vimes is given a reward for something that he doesn't want. Like, to me, it just felt like a really funny other side of the story version of that. I did also like when he turns on Vimes, and then it's like, you get that, like, little bit of narration where it's like, Lord Danny's face lit up, like, being the person on the other side of it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other watched characters in this, because we get to see them with fresh eyes from William's point of view, because William meets both Carrot and Angua and Nobby. And Nobby. He thinks that Nobby is the werewolf in the watch, which seems to be a view that the watch doesn't discourage. That was so funny, because they're like, well, how would you figure that out? Then he's like, oh. William's like, well, I figured it out because I'm so smart and deduction. And everyone's like, mm, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it is. But it also, like, seriously, what the fuck does Nobby look like? Why, like, <laughs> why, why is he, like, clearly peggable for a werewolf 
Oh, I shouldn't say clearly peggable, should I? Oh, this is the internet. <laughs> Easily pinned as a werewolf when he's not. Like, what does he look like? Why is he in the front of the human species? I love that Vimes is like, we like to not talk about Nobby's species. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's like the confirmation. <laughs> I liked that William, when he uh, sent bombs, stink bombs, Angua, who was following him, that... First of all, I loved Vimes' reaction because it, to me, it demonstrates how much these characters have become a family. Like at this point where Vimes is like, I'm going to kill him. His feet's not going to touch the ground. Like he's more mad about it than Angua is, which I just, I find it really endearing. He's like, you assaulted one of my officers. You're going to have to pay for that. And then William is like, well, I was defending myself against a werewolf that was coming after me. Right. Because I, I do think that Vimes would have gotten angry if it had been any one of his officers, but I do actually think that his reaction is more personal in this case because he sees Angua as part of his family. He even says, like, I saw you when you came in. You were a mess. Like, he's very concerned about her health after this incident. And I think that makes it, like, r even more sweeter with um, the fact that Angua asked Karish to be the one to, like, put her down. You know, cause, like, because we said there that it felt like Vimes necessarily wouldn't do it. But, like, Vimes really does care in this book for Angua. Absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because then he asks that question of Carrot again, where he's like, why don't you care more about this? Which is something that's come up again, you know, before. And Carrot actually says, well, like, we don't want people to know that she's a werewolf, necessarily. It's been really good for us to ha have it be, like, an open secret. And he says something really interesting. He says, those who know, like, those who need to know, know. And it kind of felt like a Almost like Carrot was telling Vimes, like, don't out her. Like, don't. Yeah. Like, she doesn't want this. Don't do it to her. Which ha isn't really something that's come up before with Angua. And it's also, like, a more implicit understanding of, like, what Angua wants. And, like, him being in touch with, like... Because before it was kind of, like, he didn't really know what to do when Angua was, like, being discriminated against for being a werewolf. But now he understands that, like, in this situation, it's better to, like, keep it a secret. Well, you get the sense that he's had this conversation with her. And he's, like, yeah. repeating what she has told him. Like, it's not, like, that he thinks it's it should be this way. It's that he's respecting what she has said. But he puts his weight behind it by saying, we have always thought. It's, you know what I mean? Like, it's like he's supporting her by throwing his weight behind her statement. But he's, he's using clearly his charisma. not... Right, but he's clearly not speaking for her because this isn't something Carrot would have come up with on his own. I also really liked, uh, going off the Angua thing, that we get to see beers again. We haven't seen that since Hogfather, I believe. The the undead bar that Susan sometimes goes to. I almost wanted a Susan cameo. Like, if they made this into a television series, I would almost want, like, Susan to just be sitting in the background. Like, not, no, doesn't interact with anybody. She's just like... Have death at the karaoke machine. Yeah, exactly. Or not the, 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 the trivia quiz machine. Yeah, the trivia quiz machine. But I love that Pin and Tulip go to this bar because they want to they want to try to figure out who the werewolf is in the watch. And basically, the undead close ranks around Angua. Like, they won't say who she is. And then later, I want to say it's Gaspode who says, like, she's really well-respected in the werewolf community here. Like, the werewolves mm. really like her, and, like, they're not going to talk to you. Like, they're they're going to 
Like, they're not going to give her up. Like, they're not going to, like, do anything that would piss her off. In fact, like, if she found out about any of this, like, she wouldn't be happy about it either. And I think William says something along the lines of, like, oh, she would get the watch involved. And Gaspo's like, no, I think she would just go kill that person. <laughs> like, but, like, yeah, I think I think it's interesting, considering the fact that she doesn't have a very good relationship with the werewolf community in Uberwald, that apparently she does with the werewolf community in Ankh-Morpork. Oh, Fan Family is great. Gasboat is in this. What did you think about him and his uh, new look? I'm not sure. I mean, I, f- I feel like, I-, I don't know, I don't know whether I've said this before, but definitely I feel like every time Gasboat shows up, I want more of him in the, you know, like, in the same way that he was in his first appearance when we read him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a nice dynamic that he has with, like, the Beggar's Guild. Ulron, Ron, the Duck Man. We get a new one, Altogether Andrews. That's a new character. Altogether Andrews, who's like, has some sort of multiple personality disorder. I want to know what Burke did. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, What did Burke do that was so horrible that none of them want to see him again? Uh, there's that one point where like before um, the lady comes to speak. Is, is that what the altar's name is? The lady? Lady Hermione. Like, lady Hermione, that's what it is. Where, like, they're all afraid that it's going to be Burke. What did you think about the fact that, that old Ron and the gang are the distributors of the times? I, I like that they, they make it very clear that this is not a job. Now, that was a good gag. I don't know what is so endearing about old Ron and these characters, but, like, I always like them when they're in these books. Like, I just always enjoy their, like, conversations, which are weirdly intellectual while being incredibly dumb at the same time. And, like, they're I like philosophical. their catchphrases. Their catchphrases. They have, like, these philosophical conversations. They save the dogs that Pin tries to drown. Like, so they're clearly, like, really empathetic people. Like... Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just really like them, and I like that Gaspod has apparently like found a home with them. Mm. Of course, he's like the dog version of them. That, that's a lot of his appearances, like when he's not helping out Carrot in previous books or helping out in Hollywood, is that he's just like begging for scraps and using human psychology to like, you know, get a meal so he doesn't starve. So to me, that seems very close to what they're doing. But yeah, I agree. There could have been more Gaspode. I just, I loved watching him interact with Waffles. I loved the interpretation of what Waffles says. Like, then there were two gods in the room and Gaspode is like, you know, like, he's an old fashioned dog. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we get some more characters. We get, uh, we've already mentioned him several times, but Gunilla Good Mountain and the dwarves that, that run the press, the actual mechanics of the press. What did you think about those characters and their dynamic with William and Sacharissa? I don't know. It felt slightly strange to me, their dynamic, and I can't really put my finger on why. And I don't know whether that's because, like, William is such, like, a leading man in this enterprise. Because, like, it's the dwarves' printing press, you know? Like, they're kind of, like, in control of it. But, like, especially when they go to the King of the River. Harry. Harry King? Yeah, Harry King. Where they, like, go to him, and then they're, like, despairing that they can't get paper for the price. Like, William is so confident that, like, he can get his way through that, like, kind of the the spotlight is always around William. And I wish there were more about Gunilla, uh, and not not just because, like, he wants to get married 
to what may be another dwarf man. Botany. I don't know. Who yeah. also has speaking lines in this. Yeah. We, we shouldn't we shouldn't just be like, well, uh, Gunilla's partner says nothing for this entire thing um, and is named Gunilla's partner. <laughs> like Lady De, Lady De Winter and Rebecca. Right, yeah. Uh, I thought it was funny. Somebody pointed out online that Good Mountain is very similar to Gutenberg. So that's like a fun reference. Is this? Yeah, Good Mountain Gutenberg. But like the printing press is a very like like it is a renaissance invention, but it's used mm. in a very steampunk way, uh, in a very modern way. Then when you they start talking about magazines at the end, right? Uh, completely cats. That was great. Yeah, completely cats, which just becomes a uh, woman's weekly, right? Essentially. Yeah, uh, ladies' home companion is what it yeah. what it basically becomes. I love the parts of the story where they actually get into the mechanics of writing articles and the way that article, this weird language has evolved. And it has this weird journalistic way of writing, which nobody else writes that way. But it has evolved because of the technology that they're forced to use, right? You have to be able to fit things in certain typefaces, in certain columns. And so that causes you to write in certain ways. And the scenes where Gunilla is putting the type together as uh, William is dictating or how he can read what Gunilla is doing when he's putting the fight, the, the type down because he can like see the different letters that he's pulling out. I found those scenes to be fascinating, like the way that they're actually engaging with the technology. Yeah. And then especially like the scenes where they were like writing the articles, like coming up with the words on the spot and then being like, we're getting better at this. Well, and then Sakarissa is almost better at it than William is, because remember, they're like, plucky dog saves city. And she's like, no, brave would be better because it's five words, right? And so, like, they're, like, yeah. arguing over, like, the types of things. Sakarissa is a good example of, like, a like leading female character who isn't, who doesn't fall into the traps of, like, a Patracy, you know? Yes. Or... What's her name from Moving Pictures? Ginger? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was trying to think of her stage name, Ginger, yeah. They kind of, like, she's very pro- I don't know, she's she's just very proactive in what she does. And, like, she's there to, like, talk sense into William, which I think he needs a lot of the time. Despite the fact that he's like, I'm the protagonist, this is me. Like, he'd have the opening- no Like, if this were a musical, actually, I think this might be a good- Discworld book to adapt into a stage musical, weirdly. Really? Yeah. Um, but William would have, like, the opening number, and it would be, like, very much centered around him. Like, have you seen something rotten? Or, like, heard it? No, I haven't. Oh, so, like, quick sidebar about something rotten. My friend Perry um, introduced me to this, and it, I can't stop thinking about it. It's this production of Hamlet, essentially, but it's about Hamlet itself. Like, it's very meta- and full of Shakespeare references. So there's this guy, Nick Bottom, who, like, really hates Shakespeare. Because, like, Shakespeare, he's, like, a hack who just steals all of his stuff, and no one gets any other work. And so he's gonna, like, go to a soothsayer and, like, find out the wave of the future, he finds out, is musicals. And he asks what Shakespeare's next biggest hit is going to be, and it's Hamlet, but he thinks it's Omelette. So they're, like, <laughs> start making this musical about omelets while Shakespeare is like, I don't know what I'm going to write next. But there's this song called Right Hand Man where Nick is like 
you know, trying to, like, think through things, and then his wife is, like, you know, trying to talk sense into him and be like, please stop ignoring me, you know, like, I, I'm actually here to help and I have an opinion. And I feel like that's the exact type of song that illustrates the relationship between Sacharis and William. I don't know. who Who's in charge of adapting Discworld stuff and who can write a musical? Because I definitely can't. I think this is a brilliant idea. Yeah, I'd like Sacharissa, and you're going to be shocked by this, Nigel. Shocked. Oh. oh? I didn't care for the romance between the two of them, even though I liked them both as characters. It felt very forced to me. Oh, yeah. It almost felt like, well, these are two characters. that are, One of them's a man, one of them's a woman. There has to be a romance, right? I think I would have liked it better if these two characters had just, like, this would have worked if they were just co-workers or just friends. I don't see the chemistry between them. Every time he, like, says something about her body, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. And I I just think that, I don't know. Like, I love the scene where they're, like, walking off together because they need a break. And then the press catches up to them at the end, you know, by them witnessing this accident. I don't think that that has to be a romantic scene. Like, that could just be two friends trying to get away for lunch. Like, it doesn't feel... Like it was needed, and it, honestly, it kind of feels like it muddies these two characters a little bit, both of whom I think are excellent characters. Although it would be funny if it were compass. What do you mean? If they were in a relationship, but it was like compass, you know, instead of being an actual relationship, for for like some reason they needed to be in a relationship. Oh yeah, yeah. That I mean, that makes sense. I just to me, it just felt distracting. Like, I was like, why can't yeah. they just work together at the newspaper? They can just be reporters who spend all their time together. Yeah, no, that's why, that's why I think it'd be funny. Like, if that were their whole, if that were the whole dynamic where it's like, we need to be in a relationship for some reason, but they're both very committed to just being co-workers. Like, they say straight out the gate, I only view you as a friend and a co-worker. And that isn't something that's subverted then at the end where they go, actually, I had, fe- I now have feelings for you. Where they're right. just like, we are co-workers. And this is something we're doing for a story or whatever. That'd be so much funnier. I honestly thought Sacharissa and Otto had more chemistry than William and Sacharissa did. Especially like at that rescue, like going to the rescue. Yeah, exactly. Like I was just like that these two characters have like more romantically in common than than William and Sacharissa do. I do have to say Sacharissa being Otto's support person in this book worked so well for me like it was so funny how she gets the dwarves in on it too to the point where when he starts to freak out the dwarves automatically start singing (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) like she that was wonderful i loved that that was great where she she has an emergency bloodwurst in her desk for him oh i love friends who look after friends i'm always going to be here for that kind of storyline uh what did you think about the new reporters that they hire at the end, one of whom is Mr. Bendy, who is like the first, the first, uh, really besides Slant and uh, Red Shoe is the first zombie we've seen. I don't really think anything about them. It just kind of felt like, like in the same way that the end of every watch book, they like get on new diversity hires. Yeah. That they spend the next book then being like, well, I think we should treat you as people. Yeah. I just really liked that one of the reporters, she says, this reporter really likes cats and gruesome murders. And that if that doesn't describe a white girl who listens to podcasts, I don't know what does. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was kind of hilarious. And that this this was before podcasts were popular. So 
you know? Oh my god, can you imagine a Terry Pratchett book where it's about the rise, like a Discord book about the rise of podcasts? Oh my god, I would read that. Oh, that would be wonderful. Because you could definitely do something about, you know, because like, up until a certain point in history, even music wasn't something you would go home and listen to yourself. Like, it wasn't physically possible or socially acceptable, really, to do. And so, like, you know, a podcast being something you can, like, plug into your ears and, like, listen to about gruesome, horrific murders. And you can just walk anywhere. You know, you can, like, go for a walk with your young kid or, like, paint the house or whatever. And it's just, like, in your ears. I feel like there's a lot you could be done with that in the in oh, the yeah. disc world. Absolutely. I do like the fact that, like, at the end of the book, though, they get to see one of these, like, famous weird vegetables. For the yeah. whole book, they're like, that's not real. <laughs> Was it a bifurcated... Yeah, a bifurcated parsnip. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what it was. I think it's interesting that Mr. Slant is always at the center of these conspiracies to overthrow Vetinari. Which is slightly, like, worrying, considering he's a lawyer. So he knows, and like, what they can and can't get away with. Yeah. Because So he can just be around forever. He can try again. You know, whenever. I think it's interesting that William is the first person to pick up on the fact that the Watchmen call him Mr. Vimes. And it's always two syllables, he says. Like, I just yeah. love these little observations that we never get in the Watch books. Because for, in the Watch books, we're getting everything from the Watch's perspective. And so I do appreciate that we get a perspective of these people and the way that they act from someone on the outside, because they're able to actually recognize those things. And especially because William comes from the nobility, and, like, Vimes has, like, so many titles, which, you know, like, can be used as weapons, as we've seen from the Fifth Elephant. The fact that, like, he's addressed by none of them, that they don't matter, that he's just a mister, not a count, not a um, duke. Well, William tries to call him your grace, and Vimes is like, no. Nope, just Vimes. Nope, just Vimes. Just Vimes. And we get to see Igor practicing his trade in the basement of yeah. the watch house. Igor is the, Igor's the CSI division. And the doctor, right? Because he's taking care of Drumnaut and Vetinari. Yeah. Before we transition into the ending, I did want to mention just a couple of references that we have. I think it's interesting that we've gotten to the point in the Discworld where we can just reference these other people that we've seen in other books or even just have them for short scenes, and it makes the, the world feel more developed, right? It makes it be like, oh, yeah, I know that person. Like, they have their own thing going on, you know, over there. Not the Marvel way of, like, Hulk is in this episode of She-Hulk, and then he's just gone. Right. So, like, Margolotta is mentioned. She's one of the people who William is writing to. And also, apparently, it's, like, now common knowledge, perhaps, that she has a relationship with Ventinari. We get to see Nobby and Colin several times in this book. Um, they interact with Pin and Tulip at the beginning a little bit. Dibbler several times in this book. We have a scene with Rid Coley and the Bursar at the beginning. Mm. It, where it talks about how his frog pills are made. They cause him to hallucinate that he's sane. I thought that was really good. The fact that it's like, this is a delusion that's shared by everyone. <laughs> we also get to see Rid Coley's brother, Hunan Rid Coley. Who we haven't seen. I keep for a forgetting while. what his name is. Hunan, yeah. And William sends a Cephabor off to Varence to confirm if a woman gave birth to a snake, which is a headline from the Inquirer, and Varence responds to mm. say no, Lanker women not in not in the habit of birthing snakes. Lanker women not do that. The fire insurance 
is mentioned in the very first page of this book. Rumors spread through the city like wildfire, which had quite often spread through Ankh-Morpork since its citizens had learned the words fire insurance. That's a deep dive back to Color of Magic. Yeah, where two flowers start selling it to people. The other one was uh, one of the new reporters is Mr. Obiscuit, who is from Forex, specifically from Bugrup University. And they threw him out because of what I wrote in the student magazine. So that mm. was a that was a really interesting callback to to 4X and that whole continent. And finally, Rocky, who writes the sports section of the Times, is a reference to Rocky Balboa because he was a boxer who got knocked down too many times. Ah. I recognized it immediately and I was like, this is very clever. I enjoy this. There's so much more we could talk about, but I think that that we're winding down. Is there anything else you want to say before I transition to the ending? Um, no, not really. I don't think so. There are three death sightings in this book. One of them's kind of a continuation of the other one. Um, they both involve Mr. Tulip and Mr. Pin, so we've talked about them at large. The first one is when he talks to Mr. Tulip and then shows him his life from the point of view of other people. Then he talks to Tulip again about his life, basically, and being sorry, and then he talks to Mr. Pin. And of course, like we mentioned as well, there is also a death of rat sighting during this. I just liked everything with death in this book. I thought it was restrained, but well used. Mm. The first footnote on this book happens late in the book. It's page 33, which seems very late for a Pratchett book. This is the bursar one. Uh, And thus the university got the active ingredient, which it made up into pills and fed to the bursar to keep him sane, at least apparently sane, because nothing was that simple like good old UU. In fact, he was incurably insane and hallucinated more or less continuously. But by a remarkable stroke of lateral thinking, his fellow wizards had reasoned that, in that case, the whole business could be sorted out if only they could find a formula that caused him to hallucinate that he was completely sane. Footnote, this is a very common hallucination shared by most people. So this one's your favorite, you think? It's a toss-up between that and the one that's talking about Mr. Windling. Yes, that's actually my favorite. Oh, well, I'll let you get to that one. I'll choose a, a different one, so. No, it's okay. We can both, like, share these two because I think they are the best footnotes in the book. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some that I like, but they're closer to, like, things that made me think, I guess. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you read the one about Mr. Windling because I can't find it right now. <laughs> The best way to describe Mr. Windling would be like this. You are at a meeting. You'd like to be away early. So would everyone else. There really isn't very much to discuss anyway. And just as everyone can see any other business coming over the horizon and is already putting their papers neatly together, a voice says, If I can raise a minor matter, Mr. Chairman, and with a horrible wooden feeling in your stomach, you know now that the evening will go on for twice as long with much referring back to the minutes of earlier meetings. The man who who has just said that and is now sitting there with a smug smile of dedication to the committee process, is as near Mr. Windling as makes no difference. And something that distinguishes the Mr. Windlings of the universe is the term, in my humble opinion, which they think adds weight to their statements rather than indicating in reality, these are the mean little views of someone with the social grace of duckweed. Mr. Windling is such an odd character because you know exactly who he is when you're reading this. Yeah, you've met him before. Yeah, but he also shares the same speciesism as Lord DeWord does. And I love that scene when Longshot, the dwarf, cuts the top off his egg (laughs) in retaliation to what Mr. Windling is saying. But he's the kind of person that says no offense, right? After he gives offense. 
Mr. Windling is like the guy from Get Out, the dad who's like, if I could have voted for Obama a third time, I would have. Like, that's that's have. Mr. Windling. Yeah, absolutely. So, what made you laugh? I don't know. The bursar always seems to make me laugh. Bursar's great. The bursar is great. Like, what was it? Oh, I kind of remember the one that, like, really got to me, where he was just kind of being just completely uh like digging his heels in for being for being something in um interest not interesting times in the last continent i don't know but it's always just stuff that he says i don't know i don't know why this, i find this so funny where they're talking about uh understood sir that unseen university was against the use of movable type oh i think it's time to embrace the exciting challenges presented to us by the century of the fruit bat said the bursar we that's the one we're just about to leave sir then it's high time we embrace them, don't you think? Good point, sir. <laughs> and now I must fly, said the bursar, except that I mustn't. I, <laughs> just on top of the fact that he's constantly, like, hallucinating all of the time, uh, just the fact that he's like, I must fly, and then be like, I don't know, someone has told the bursar at some stage that he's not allowed to fly. Yeah, I mean, Red Coley's yelling at him, get down, at the beginning. Yeah. I had two that I really liked that made me laugh. And I, I feel like I can say both of them because the other one is a bursar one. That's very close to the one you read. But it's the one where he says, it's not what the bursar says, I guess. It's the Good Mountain. The Good Mountain. Is that the new exciting spinoff from The Good Wife? Yeah, The Good Mountain. Yes, here it is. Yeah, okay. So the burst it's when Good Mountain hands him the piece of paper with what he just said on it. And the bursar says, but these are, when I said, I only just said, how did you know I was going to say? I mean, my actual words, he stuttered. Of course, they're not properly justified, said Good Mountain. Now, wait just a moment, the bursar began. William left them to it. The stone he could work out, even the engravers used a big flat stone as a workbench. And he'd seen dwarves pulling paper sheets off the metal letters, so that made sense, too. And what the bursar said had been unjustified. I love that pun. Like, yeah. of course, it's not justified, right? Because... They have to justify Justified it on the paper. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But like what he's saying is unjustified. The other one that I thought was really funny, this is the one that made probably made me laugh the most in the book, was when Vimes asks Angua what the what the pool is on William, like what when he's gonna die. Oh, like what yeah. the watchmen are and when she <laughs> says, You might just spread the word around that I don't like that sort of thing, will you? Yes, sir. Find out who's running the book, and when you have found out that it's Nobby, take it off of him. <laughs> I, like just i like that he's like find out who's doing it and when you find out it's nobby like like he already knows what's gonna happen i just like that where it's like well it's obviously nobby but we need to conduct we need to conduct like a thorough internal review what's something that made you think um i mean obviously like or a lie can run around the world before the t uh, truth gets its boots on it's different uh, now made does me it? think yeah it hits it hits much differently but then there was like a couple a couple, like, footnotes and stuff. Especially, like, William's class understood that justice was, like, coal or potatoes. You ordered it when you needed it. Like, there's a lot about class in this book, which is usually, like, the purview of the watch books. And this, like, right. feels watch-adjacent. A lot about, like, how the world, um, runs on words. And there's that footnote, then, where it's, like, how words only exist in certain contexts. How, like, you'll only find beverages on certain, like, restaurant menus. I thought that was, like a really interesting observation, the fact that, like, language, certain bits of language only exists in certain spaces because it's, like, accepted that this type of person would use it. And obviously this is, right. like, completely different to Kant's or, like, AAVE, but, like, language which is 
held in by stratified upper class social structures. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I to kind of build off of that, one of the things that really made me think was there is a lot in this book about dog whistles without like actually calling them that, which I think is very interesting. Like there's that mm. part where and for those of you who don't know, dog whistles are when somebody says something that's code for something that's racist or something that's homophobic or ableist or just anything that's terrible for a minority community, but they don't actually say it. They say something that becomes like a stand-in for whatever it is they're trying to actually say. Like when you hear someone say, oh, I just want the trains to run on time, that's kind of a fascist dog whistle. Right, exactly. And so like Pin at one point is talking about the, he's talking to the clients, uh, Mr. Pin, and they call themselves concerned citizens. He knew about concerned citizens. Wherever they were, they all spoke the same private language where traditional values meant hang someone. And mm. so, like, the idea that the words traditional values is a dog whistle for certain ways of thinking. There's another scene, too, later on, and it kind of goes with what you were saying about the rich have their own private language, right, that allows them to say these things and kind of nicely say these things. But there's actually a scene later on when Windling is speaking at the table, and he says a series of dog whistles Really, said Mr. Windling, making the world suggest that words suggest that William's opinion was considerably more humble than his. Anyway, I understand the guild leaders aren't meeting today. He sniffed. It's time for a change. Frankly, we could do with a ruler who's a little more responsive to the views of ordinary people. But William glanced at Mr. Longshaft the dwarf, who was peacefully cutting some toast into soldiers. Maybe he hadn't noticed. Maybe there was nothing to notice, and William was being oversensitive. But years of listening to Lord DeWord's opinions had given him a certain ear. It told him when phrases like the views of ordinary people, innocent and worthy in themselves, were being used to mean that someone should be whipped. How do you mean, he said. The city is getting too big, said Mr. Windling. In the old days, the gates were kept shut, not left open to all and sundry, and people could leave their doors unlocked. That is a series of dog whistles, right, that he's saying. Mm. He's not actually saying... I hate dwarves or I hate trolls. What he's saying is the city used to be safer and he's implying that it's the immigration of these different people that have come in that have made it less safe. And I like that William specifically says he can hear it because he's heard it from his father. He understands the double meaning of all of these things that Mr. Windling is saying. He has an ear for it, he says. Mm. Because William, despite the fact that he's trying so hard not to be his father, still makes assumptions about people, right? Especially when it comes to class. And when Saccharis is talking to him and he's like, are you saying people aren't interested in the truth? Listen, what's true to a lot of people is that they need the money for rent by the end of the week. Look at Mr. Ron and his friends. What's the truth mean to them? They live under a bridge. She held up a piece of lined paper crammed edge to edge with some careful looped handwriting of someone for whom holding a pen was not a familiar activity. This is a report of the annual meeting of the Ankh-Morpork Caged Bird Society, she said. They're just ordinary people who breed canaries and things as a hobby. Their chairman lives next door to me, which is why he gave me this. This stuff is important to him. My goodness, but it's dull. It's about the best of breed and some changes in the show rules about parrots, which they argued about for two hours. But the people who were arguing were people who mostly spend their day mincing meat or sawing wood and basically leading little lives that are controlled by other people, do you see? They've got no say in who runs the city, but they can damn well see to it that cockatoos aren't lumped in with parrots. It's not their fault. It's just the way things are. What are you sitting there with your mouth open like that? 
William closed his mouth. All right, I understand. No, I don't think you do, she snapped. I looked you up in Twerp's peerage. Your family has never had to worry about the small stuff, have they? They've been some of the people who really run things. This paper is kind of a hobby for you, isn't it? Oh, you believe in it. I'm sure you do. But if it all goes wahoonie-shaped, you still have money. I won't. So if the way it can be kept going is by filling it with what you sneer at as olds, then that's what I'll do. They get into a conversation then about like public interest and, and so on. But I really like that she's able to call him out on that. Like, you don't actually need this, but the rest of us do. And so, you know, Mm. if we have to sell advertisements, that's what we're going to do. And what she's basically saying is, is that there is a certain point to which people can't really worry about the big things if they're worrying about the small things. We talk about this in education a lot, actually, because there's this idea that like a child isn't going to learn how to read if they're worried about where they're going to sleep that night. A child isn't going to learn how to, like, is not going to care about learning how to read if they're hungry. You can't give them, like, the philosophical problems, I should say, before you fix the practical problems. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah. Any thoughts? I know I just spoke for a long time. <laughs> oh, hold on. Here here it is. Someone has to care about the, the big truth. What veterinary mostly does not do is a lot of harm. We've had rulers who were completely crazy and very, very nasty. And it wasn't that long ago either. Veterinary might not be a very nice man, but I had breakfast today with someone who'd be a lot worse if he ran the city, and there are lots more like him. And what's happening now is wrong, and as for your damn parrot fanciers, if they don't care about anything much beyond things that go squawking cages, then one day there'll be someone in charge of this place who'll make them choke on their own budgies. You want that to happen? If we don't make an effort, all they'll get is silly stories about talking dogs and L's ate my gerbils. I realize it's probably running into what you had what you have just read, but, like, the fact that, like, going back to which guild didn't vote for Veterinary to be put out of the job, you know, like, he's not, he might not be a very nice man, but he's a good ruler for the city, and so it allows people then to, like, be able to do certain things without having to worry, like the Guild of Seamstresses, about, like, protection, or, like, being safe. I think that it's a really interesting conversation between William and Sakharissa. I mean, they're two different points of view, and really both of them are right. All right, anything else you want to say about the truth? It's out there somewhere, but the lies are in your head. Next episode, we continue our discussion about the nature of time and the end of the Discworld in Thief of Time, plus the short story, Death and What Comes Next. Ooh. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on Twitter, mainly on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where I've been continuing my ongoing countdown to Avatar 2. I've also, I've been tweeting an awful lot about Pagliacci the Clown. I've noticed that. Why is that? Who I knows? I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, did you like read something about him no. recently? Or, no, just, just thinking about, my, thinking about yeah, my commitment to bits it's quite good. This one, I'm just going to be uh, Pag- Pagliacci posting Legendary. for a while. I've also just been tweeting about Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller is possibly the best film ever made. It's not my favorite film, but it's possibly the best. Uh, and then also just my shows. Archive Admirers, not a thing anymore. Let's be honest, not a thing anymore. This one is a thing because you're listening to it right now. And then Hyperfixations also. <laughs> We've been doing some some recording for those recently. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at The By Paradox and on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. You think that's really true, he said. She shrugged. Really true? Who knows? This is a newspaper, isn't it? It just has to be true until tomorrow. William felt the temperature rise. Her smile had really been attractive. Are you sure? Oh, yes. True until tomorrow is good enough for me. And behind her, the big black vampire of a printing press waited to be fed and to be brought alive in the dark of the night for the light of the morning. It chopped the complexities of the world into little stories, and it was always hungry. And it needed a double-column story for page two, William remembered. And, a few inches under his hand, a woodworm chewed its way contentedly through the ancient timber. Reincarnation enjoys a joke as much as the next philosophical hypothesis. As it chewed, the woodworm thought, this is great wood. Because nothing has to be true forever, just for long enough to tell you the truth. The end.